This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 23, The Minoan Civilization. location for this week's podcast is the island of Crete. Crete is a large island that marks the southern point of the Aegean Sea, the sea that separates the Greek mainland from the Anatolian mainland. Once you head south of Crete, you are in the open waters of the Mediterranean Sea looking towards the North African coast. Cyprus and the Levant is to your east. Egypt to the southeast, and the Italian lands and what would in the future become Carthage to the west. It is right in the middle of the eastern Mediterranean. So when did humans first arrive on Crete? Well, to get there you need a boat. If you can get to Crete on a boat, then you can get to Cyprus on a boat. Now we have talked a lot about Cyprus during this podcast series, particularly we have done so a lot during the ancient volume but we also spoke about it in the prehistoric volume. We do know that Cyprus was occupied during the Neolithic with signs of agriculture so it would be reasonable to suggest that the island of Crete was accessible for the same reason. So it would be fair to assume that there was activity on the island of Crete during the Neolithic as we evidently would have had the facility to travel overseas with resources such as livestock even 10,000 years ago. Professor Thomas F. Strasser of Providence College in Rhode Island led a team of archaeologists to two sites in the south of the island of Crete in 2008 and 2009. What he found there revolutionised the whole of the understanding of the history of Mediterranean seafaring. Hand axes dating to 130,000 years ago were discovered at the Preveli Gorge. So this is 10 times earlier than any of the Neolithic seafaring. How humans made it to Crete is open to debate, with the favoured belief being that they made it there using wooden rafts from North Africa. The motivations and disregard of the dangers of such expansive and open waters are something that really confuses me. But the presence of the hand axes are irrefutable, buried in sedimentary layers of the age stated. We don't have a reason for the migration and we don't have anything to suggest presence between this period and the Neolithic. What we do know about Crete and also about Cyprus is that both islands did have their own indigenous fauna before the Neolithic and that these animals evolved in a similar way to those that we encountered on the southeast Asian island of Flores where not only did we encounter Homo floresiensis, a small species of human, but we also encountered Stegodon elephants 
a small species of elephant. Now these small species are now extinct, but they are an example of island dwarfism, which can occur when large animals have limited resources and the small animals which require less energy to survive will ultimately survive. This also happened in Cyprus and in Crete. Dwarf hippopotamuses existed on both islands as well as dwarf elephants. We know that these animals were gone by the Neolithic. So could Neolithic humans have been responsible for their disappearance? We do find that over and over again Homo sapiens is standing in the dock attempting to defend itself regarding the demise of other fauna species, both human and otherwise. Nonetheless, Neolithic humans did arrive with their newfound agricultural way of life. It may be that by around 6500 BCE, human occupants were cultivating cereal crops, raising ungulate livestock and producing basic ceramics. While Cretan society was existing successfully, a culture was emerging to the north on the Cyclades Islands, which lie between mainland Greece and Anatolia and directly north of Crete. This Cycladic culture were also agricultural, but they were very much a player in the trade network game as early as 3000 BCE. We can see that items created using Cycladic material had travelled away from the islands, but we can also see that ceramics from the Cyclades had made it to Crete. So we can see that the Cretans were quite familiar with their neighbours to the north. We can also determine that mainland bronze was filtering onto the Cyclades and in turn Crete. It is quite difficult to label a time period when the Minoan culture of Crete began. It would be like asking when the Sumerian culture of Mesopotamia or the Egyptian culture of the Nile Valley began. These people were always there, evolving their lifestyles, developing their skills, expanding their networks and maturing their culture. The term Minoan is a name attributed to the people of Crete by Greek mythologists and we have no reason to believe that a significant migration onto Crete took place. So the Minoans may well have just been the residents of Crete all along. Palaces it is very important to state at this point that experts do not necessarily think that the people of Crete regarded themselves as a united nation and this would also go against what we have learned about the other emerging societies if it were so. It seems that by looking at some of the earliest settled sites in Crete that there existed distinguishable traits that would strongly suggest that those settlements of Crete would look after themselves and trade with other Cretan settlements. Back in episode 21, we discussed how we have not been able to decipher the Linear A writing script of the residents of Crete, so we rely on archaeological evidence to try to guess what was going on. 
it would be at the beginning of the 3rd millennium BCE that we would begin to see the emergence of palaces in Crete. The palaces are very significant because archaeologists fervently study these sites to try and determine the very nature of these people. Do they tell us anything about the way of life of the average Minoan? Do they tell us about the political hierarchy of the Minoans? And do they tell us anything about the religion of the Minoans? Many of the palaces in Crete have an original construction date applied to them of around 1900 BCE. However, we do need to be careful about this because we know that the palaces had to be rebuilt at a later date. But we also believe that the palaces were built at previously occupied sites. So to clarify, these were not new sites of occupations, but improvements to existing sites. So it appears that in the lead up to 1900 BCE, the Minoans were doing quite well and were able to turn their attention to building elaborate palace complexes. Four sites of ancient palaces on Crete are particularly interesting. The archaeological sites of all four are still there today and you can visit them all. The most well known one is at Knossos. It is also the biggest and not too far from the site of Malia to its east. There is a palace site in the southwest of the island called Festos and another is right on the east coast at Zakros. The location of Zakros is very interesting as it is a short walk from the eastern shores and facing the waterways towards Egypt. Drains and a cistern were constructed here and some claim that there would have been a population limit here due to the lack of agricultural fertile land. So for many the proximity to the sea was essential as this particular site would have needed to trade well to gather resource. So Zakros could have been a trade link for the agriculturally rich Egyptians to trade with the other Cretan sites and the Cycladic ceramic producers. The sites at Festos, Malia and Knossos were considerably bigger with the site at and around Knossos being the home to tens of thousands. We can't be completely sure why all of these palace sites appeared to be enhanced simultaneously around the same time, 1900 BCE. Could it have been that four different kingdoms had emerged on the island and that it was agreed that capital cities should be built? Did the Minoans believe that foreign visitors needed to be shown the importance of Cretan civilization in order to show it the respect that it deserved? Or could it have been that there had been a migration of peoples to the island of Crete and this was the result of the population boom and the change of culture? The palace site at Knossos is absolutely considerable. It was constructed around a large central court and would grow to contain around 1300 rooms. Evidence of staircases point towards multi-storey buildings. The entire site would have taken up around 2.5 hectares, which is roughly 
the same size as three soccer pitches. Let's take a closer look at Knossos. The palace site would have been a site for the storage of foodstuffs such as oil and grain. Grain would have been milled at Knossos too, but this would have taken place at a different area of the palace complex. This area of Crete would have been very rich in agricultural produce in contrast to the area around the palace of Zakros on the east coast. Frescoes. Some of the biggest clues that we have regarding Minoan society would be the frescoes that have been discovered at the palace sites and especially at Knossos. These frescoes were images painted onto the plastered walls of the buildings of the palace complexes and this method of painting has enabled the colours to survive to the present day some three and a half thousand years later. Many of the frescoes at Knossos contain images of people, animals and mythological creatures. What else do we believe that human beings wanted to depict in their artwork if this podcast series so far has taught us anything? Let us have a look at some of the most famous frescoes of the Knossos site, particularly the ones that are iconic to Knossos and the Minoan culture. Firstly, let's talk about the dolphin fresco. At first, the dolphin fresco looks like a nice painting of the wildlife of the seas, but we have seen all too often that ancient and prehistoric artworks are likely to have a deeper resonance within their societies than just a pretty picture. Now, I'm finding it difficult to find any evidence of a categorical reason for the painting, so I have to take a punt, and I do believe that this definitely links the people of Knossos not only to their seafaring lifestyle, but also their probable desire to hunt the animals of the sea. Dolphins are the notable and large animals depicted on the fresco, but a great number of fish, both large and small, and of different colours, accompany the dolphins. If this is not the case, then maybe the wildlife of the sea was held in high regard in a spiritual manner. Other frescoes include the griffin fresco of the throne room at Knossos. Here we see an animal which appears to have the body of a lion and the head of an eagle. Now it does seem that lions would have been commonplace on the Greek mainland, Anatolia, the Levant and Africa, so we probably shouldn't be too surprised that the lion was known to the Cretans. However, we don't believe that they were actually on Crete itself. This might point towards the fact that the Minoans were migrants to Crete in the first place, but that is something that we will have to discuss in more detail later. Another shows three ladies with elaborately dressed hair. We can't be completely sure whether these ladies were part of the royal family, but they appear to be wearing an abundance of jewels. Historians are fascinated by the fact that they are wearing upper body garments which are open at the front, exposing their breasts. Some have suggested that this might have only been the way that noble women dressed. There is a Mycenaean fresco that depicts a lady whose breasts are covered, 
My gut instinct is that it doesn't have any particular meaning and it's just what Minoan women wore, in the same way that it appears that Minoan males wore kilts. It was just a fashion choice. It was surely in no way a demeaning factor in a sexist way, as it does appear that there was more egalitarianism on this level in Minoan society as demonstrated in the bull leaping fresco. The bull leaping fresco demonstrates what could be described as sport with an individual performing an acrobatic act atop of a bull. This was undoubtedly extremely dangerous and something that's never appealed to me as a fun pastime. However, it is believed that this was a sport for men and women alike and it has been speculated that they may have competed in teams. Frescoes of what appears to be boxing matches have also been discovered which points towards that Greek competitiveness that would give rise to the Olympic Games just a few centuries later. We can see ball leaping in the modern world in the south of France and in the north of Spain. Mythology The bull was very important to the Minoans and was depicted more frequently than one might expect, so it likely held a sacred or an important role in Minoan society. Ultimately, the bull would also become immortalised in Minoan mythology, thanks to the Greek story of the Minotaur in the labyrinth. Now, you may remember that I mentioned Zeus, the Greek god of the sky, back in episode 10, which tackled the religion of Canaan and Phoenicia. The reason we mentioned him was because he is regarded as the father of Heracles. Another of Zeus's sons was called Minos, and he would become the king of Crete. Minos's uncle was Poseidon, the god of the sea. While Minos was offering sacrifices, he made an ambitious wish that a great bull emerge from the sea, with the promise that he would sacrifice it to Poseidon. The bull appeared, but Minos kept it for himself. As a punishment, Poseidon would arrange for Minos's queen, Pasiphae, to become impregnated by the bull. So she did, and would give birth to a half-man, half-bull creature, which would mature to become the ferocious, man-eating Minotaur. King Minos would have a labyrinth constructed that the dangerous Minotaur would be kept in, and this would be the reason why the Minoans are called the Minoans, as the Minoan is cognate with Minos and Minotaur. It is difficult to say how much of the King Minos of Crete mythology was in any way connected to the contemporary Minoan mythology. There would have likely have been a spiritual belief system among the Minoans due to the fact that we find grave goods at Minoan burial sites and spirituality appears to be commonplace among most human societies. So we think that Minoans considered there to be an afterlife due to these practices. The question is, how much does the Greek mythology marry up to the Minoan mythology? We may never know unless we can decipher the contemporary 
Linear A writing system of the Minoans. Festos disc. An artifact that has been recovered from the palace of Festos is a fired clay disc around 15 centimetres in diameter and inscribed with many symbols that are likely to represent a form of writing. The problem we have is that we do not recognise the writing. It's not even like the traditional Minoan Linear A script, even though the item appears to date from the Minoan period. The symbols adorn both sides of the disc and are written in a spiral from the outside to the middle. There has been so much debate about this artefact that I wouldn't even want to speculate about its purpose, about what it says or its place of origin. As ever, with anything like this, I would encourage you to look at the artefact yourself with a speculative mind. The one thing that can be said about it is that the characters impressed into the disc appear to have been done so with stamps that appear to have been reused for similar characters, so experts have deemed this to be the first artefact with movable printing type. However, in reality, it would be better described as a precursor to movable type. Writing systems relating to Crete are actually rather more complicated than it may initially appear. A style of hieroglyphic writing existed on Crete, which is referred to as Cretan hieroglyphs. It predated Linear A, but also was used alongside it before becoming obsolete. So the relationship between the two is unclear. While the Mycenaeans appeared to adopt the Linear A script and develop it into the Linear B script, it does also appear that a related script evolved in Cyprus, and this in turn evolved into the Cypriot syllabary writing system, by which time it had dispersed with any pictograms and had become fully syllabary. Lifestyle and wealth. Now that we've taken a look at the writing, let us go back to the content of the frescoes and explore the mysteries behind the images. You may recall that we spoke of the bull leaping traditions, including females, demonstrating that egalitarianism was more apparent in Crete than in some other ancient societies. The highly decorated females in the fresco, called Ladies in Blue, also appears to be a celebration of the female gender. Experts suggest that females held the same status in Minoan society as men, with the royal lines being matrilineal. Minoan society also had goddesses, which are often featured on ceremonial objects and grave goods. The most popular of these appears to be the snake goddess. We know of this particular goddess thanks to the figurines that have been discovered that were interestingly made of faience, which is a glass-like material often attributed to the creations of the prehistoric and ancient Egyptians. The snake goddesses were dressed with breasts exposed, 
the same as the ladies of the ladies in blue fresco. So this style of female dress appears to be a regular Minoan style. The societies of Crete from this period are undoubtedly very advanced. The palace sites actually contained drainage systems which would have been essential in such a tightly packed settlement such as the palace complex of Knossos. Irrigation techniques would have been well known so a simple drainage system should not be regarded as something too extraordinary. If anything it demonstrates a relatively peaceful lifestyle that enabled societies to settle comfortably and unchallenged. Enough that they could build an impressive and satisfying settlement. Minoan culture is also known for its jewellery and ceramics. Artisanry would have been to an admirable standard, including jewellery made using the Nubian gold imported from Egypt, ivory and faience sculptures, items made from bronze and beautifully decorated ceramic pots and vessels, some of which containing perfumed oils. The oils were cultivated by those workers with no artistic skill alongside wines also produced in the olive orchards and vineyards. The timber of Crete would have been very useful in the construction of the boats that would give the Minoans their link to other cultures such as the Cycladic people on the islands of the Aegean Sea and their neighbours on the Greek and Anatolian mainlands and to the societies of North Africa, Cyprus and the Levant to the south and east. Minoan frescoes have been found in the Egyptian lands of the Nile Delta, although it has been very difficult to pinpoint whether these were erected by the Hyksos or the New Kingdom Egyptians, and it's difficult to work out why they are there, but they are indisputably related to the Aegeans, if not the Minoans, with bull-leaping themes represented among others. The success of the Minoans is also represented by their settlements away from Crete. The success of the Minoans is also represented by their settlements away from Crete. Evidence of small Minoan colonies exists on the island of Scythera, northwest of Crete and close to the Greek mainland. Minoan architectural styles have been identified on the island of Milos in the Cyclades. The people of the island of Rhodes to the northeast of Crete would have had a strong link with the Minoans. And we can even see a strong Minoan influence on the ancient Greek city of Miletus, which is on the Anatolian mainland. So Minoan influence extended beyond Crete's own coast. Another considerable site of Minoan influence was the island of Santorini, which is one of the southernmost islands of the Cyclades. One look at the island of Santorini from above gives us evidence of what happened during its history. The island surrounds a caldera. A caldera is a circular crater left behind by the eruption of a volcano and its subsequent collapse, simply leaving circular promontories 
surrounding what was once the centre of the volcano. The volcano is referred to as Thera, which would have also been the name of the island in ancient times. A Minoan settlement on this island called Akrotiri was destroyed by this eruption. Akrotiri was likely to have been an important settlement for the processing of copper as is evidenced by the discovery of moulds and crucibles recovered from the destroyed site. The presence of Linear A inscriptions and frescoes are what points us in the direction of this being a colony of the Minoans. The collapse of a volcano of this size would have considerable and catastrophic consequences for the surrounding geography of the island. Subsequent earthquakes and tsunamis would have been certain, so we have to look for evidence of consequences. The residents of Akrotiri would have certainly suffered a similar fate to the more well-known city of Pompeii and what happened to them in the year 79 after the eruption of the nearby volcano Vesuvius on the Italian peninsula. Such is the sketchiness of ancient timelines that it is difficult to state the widespread impact of Thera on the surrounding world. Certainly one of the societies that would have felt the impact of the eruption the most would have been the Minoans of Crete. However, we don't have any written evidence of the events of this period, and if we did, we wouldn't be able to read them anyway. A layer of fallout ash would have landed on Crete, certainly the eastern half of the island, but it is not thought to have been as severe as originally speculated. Historians suspect the impact of the certain tsunami that would have occurred due to the sheer amount of sedimentary material falling into the sea would have been more notable. Certainly the site of Knossos is a good distance away from the north coast and on raised lands, so this could have saved the site from destruction. However, there is evidence of the rebuilding of palaces on Crete sometime around 1700 BCE. However, the Thera eruption is suggested to have happened sometime between 50 and 150 years after this date, so the reconstruction of the Minoan palaces may have happened following an earthquake. We're just not completely sure. The disappearance of the island of Thera must have seemed like an incredible act of the gods when it happened. Such was the greatness of the geological impact. It would have been something far beyond human imagination. It has even been speculated that Thera could have been the actual location of Atlantis, the mythological island that disappeared into the sea. Although Plato did claim that the mythological Atlantis was in the Atlantic Ocean. So Ethera did erupt after the wonderful reconstructions of the Minoan palaces, then we have to consider that it may have had a significant impact on the eventual fate of the Minoans. It is possible that the lifestyles of the Minoans were disrupted significantly. Even if Minoan settlements were not destroyed by the aftermath, it could be that enough disruption was caused to their trading partners 
to hurt their own economy at least. Ultimately, it was around the year 1400 BCE that we see Minoan palaces destroyed by fire. And we're not completely sure what happened, but this ended the golden age of the Minoans. Conclusions Well, where on earth do I begin? It's one of those dreadful situations where I force myself out of dutiful protocol to give my very simple opinions on what I think. The one thing I do notice is that there is Egyptian influence on Cretan society. So the use of faience and gold is likely to have been imported from Egypt. And the connection with the Minoan frescoes appearing in the Nile Delta could have a significance. Although some just say that this could just be ceremonial, as for a political marriage for example. So I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if the Minoan culture, as we know it, was heavily influenced by Egypt. I would even go so far as to say that the existing Cretan population may have been added to by migrating Egyptians, possibly during the first intermediate period and possibly bringing hieroglyphic writing styles. I also think that Minoan culture must have been somewhat fragmented, so it would have been an island of city-states. Crete is a large island and it would have taken some time to travel from one palace to another. The fact that a second writing system emerged on the island that was much more modern than the Cretan hieroglyphs points towards an island of similar but distinct societies. There can be no way that such a mighty catastrophe such as Thera volcanic eruption and subsequent collapse would not have had major consequences for the local area and it could be that Minoans migrated towards Cyprus which could explain the similarity in script. It is difficult to imagine that they would have all just simply stayed on Crete if they felt that they were in danger and especially if agricultural land had been destroyed by tsunamis for example. After being destroyed by fire, the palace sites were resettled and the Linear B script used by the Mycenaeans but thought to be adopted for the Minoan Linear A script appears to have been used in Knossos. The Mycenaeans appear to have occupied Minoan sites and appear to have impressed more of their own culture on the Minoan sites and people and we see more Mycenaean architecture after 1400 BCE, which is more or less the traditional date given for the decline of the Minoans. So next week we're going to take a look at the Mycenaeans who played such an important role in the decline of the Minoans, and the very same Mycenaeans who are believed to have disappeared during the late Bronze Age collapse, which we have already previously covered. So hopefully we can tie together some more loose ends. Thank you very much for listening to this week's first podcast about ancient Europe. We're not staying here for long. We're going to talk about the Mycenaeans and then after that we're going to have an episode that I originally didn't plan for but I have come around to the idea that I think it's a good idea and it's going to be about the Trojan War. So that's what the next two episodes have in store.
a small bit of news we're now on instagram so you can follow the history of the world podcast on instagram the handle is the history of the world podcast or one word there isn't a great deal on there at the moment i've not been getting out much lately so i haven't had an opportunity to take many pictures but uh, once i do i shall be sure to share them with you now please don't forget as ever that you can support the podcast by joining our patreon page and offering to make a monthly donation it's very simple and you can offer as little or as much as you like and it really does help to keep the podcast going so if you visit the website the history of the world podcast website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com then you can go and visit the patreon page but if you're unable to make any financial contribution towards the project then please do not forget to rate and review us on your chosen uh, site where you listen to the podcast so rate and review very very important please uh, at least very much consider that if you cannot make any kind of financial donation other than that the podcast is and should always be free of charge to listen to don't forget also that we have a discussion forum where you can come and continue the discussion about the content of the history of the world podcast episode so this doesn't have to be the end of the discussion this when the podcast ends you can come along to the discussion forum put forward your point of view ask any questions and see what the history of the world podcast community have uh, got to say in response i'm always involved and uh, i'm always happy to respond to anything i see on there so i'm very much part of the discussion on there as well so it's somewhere to come and continue the discussions now this week was a very special week for the history of the world podcast last monday was our first birthday it was the anniversary of the start of the podcast which happened uh, a year ago last monday june the 24th 2018 was when we sent out our first podcast episode and we've managed to successfully send one out every week since i never thought i would be able to do that but i've done it some weeks when i was away obviously i had to sort of post something that was about 10 minutes long with me talking about uh, something that w wasn't particularly interesting but it did keep the presence going and uh, now we have uh, this will be the 55th podcast post and uh, out of those 55 I believe 47 have been proper episodes so you know we haven't done too badly and thank you everyone who has stuck with it everyone who's interacted with it everyone who's contributed towards its success we've done it together ultimately and thank you very much indeed let's hope that we're celebrating again in another 12 months uh, now i received a message on facebook from a gentleman called shane from sacramento california and uh, he just said i found your podcast on the apple platform i'm a truck driver so i get lots of time to think about everything and he goes on to discuss the connections with god and the bible with our history and um, it's uh, it's quite an interesting post. He just said, I, I wanted to say, hi, you're doing a great job. I feel like I'm learning all kinds of stuff from your podcast and not a lot is going over my head. Keep up the good work, which is great to hear. And, uh, and then obviously um, 
it's very important that we do tackle the subject of uh, religious spirituality cosmogony uh, because it's vital to understanding the religions of today's world so everything to do with um, the bible that we've already discussed um, egyptian um, cosmogony uh, mesopotamian cosmogony uh, what we will discuss when we get to the Trojan War is, is significant as well because that embraces the Greek deities. So, And it might be that there are vital links between all of these belief systems and cosmogenies. So it's vital to explore them. Religious is part of our makeup. We are human and therefore we have religion and religion exists because of humans. So it's very much ingrained in us to have religious considerations so if we don't explore those then we're really missing out a vital chunk of human history and what makes us human which if you remember right back a year ago to episode one the the remit of this podcast was, was to investigate our history and investigate what makes us human so everything that happens and everything we explain we've got this underlying or this undercurrent of trying to understand who we are in today's world and that's the way it should be in my opinion but thank you very much Shane it was an absolute pleasure to hear from you and you sound like uh, an interesting gentleman so um, I'm pleased that you got in touch now Andy Hardy got in touch with the podcast Andy's one of our patrons so uh, thank you very much for getting in touch Andy he sent me some pictures, very interesting pictures um, he says I've become very interested in the origins of the first Australians recently following a visit to caves near Chilligurry in far north Queensland with a family who are locals there last October one of the things that amazed me is shown in the photos below which my cousin called cave varnish it's a rock that has been rubbed smooth and looks almost varnished in appearance because for 50,000 years or so they say people have sat in that spot cool and shady under the rock ledge that forms the cave to look out across the landscape and at the dreaming artwork that is painted in ochre on the cave roof it's absolutely fascinating I shall endeavour to post a picture of this on the social media pages but if you get the opportunity to look at it then maybe you know better as to what it is and you can maybe get in touch with the podcast and let us know exactly what it is it might be a good excuse to post a photo on Instagram perhaps so we'll do that and uh, I'm sure Andy will be in touch if he can confirm one way or the other whether his story is true but absolutely brilliant it's the kind of thing that we want people to do and send into us here at the History of the World podcast and we can explore these ideas and discuss them together and uh, I'm sure we'll all find it very interesting so thank you very much everyone that's it for another week so we're going to sign off now next week the Mycenaeans of mainland Greece, these people who we've already tackled before briefly during the late Bronze Age collapse episode, that's way back in episode 6, so uh, before next week's episode you could go back and have a quick refresher from episode 6, but that's who we're talking about next, the Mycenaeans, the people who supplanted the Minoans in Crete, the people who disappeared during the late Bronze Age collapse, and the people who are linked 
to the Trojan War, which is going to be the episode we do in two weeks' time. So, a lot to look forward to. However, until then, don't forget, visit the website, go and explore all of the interesting stuff on there. Don't forget, rate and review the podcast or make a donation to keep it going. Until next week, have a fantastic week, everybody. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please, don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyofthewordpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.